Welcome to Prestigious Minds, a podcast about the history of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am Jeremiah, joined with my co-host Rob, and we have a few announcements before we jump into this week's episode. First, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show and that you're having a wonderful week. Secondly, you can find us on social media at pmindspod, that is the letter P-M-I-N-D-S... P-O-D, and that will be our Twitter handle, our Instagram, and then on Facebook you can find us at Prestigious Minds. I won't keep you any further from your reason why you're here, so let's jump into it. Welcome back to another episode about Vanderbilt here on Prestigious Minds. How's it going, Rob? It's going pretty good, my man. Last episode was a little choppy, but... We're going to smooth her out here. We've got two episodes left. This one and the last one covering Vanderbilt. At the end of last time here on Vanderbilt, we had mentioned the transatlantic trade that Vanderbilt got into. This is going to be a sub-minute summary of that because it's not substantially different from what he's already doing. He basically goes into business with steamships to Europe, specifically the UK with a line between like New York and Liverpool or London, somewhere around there, runs people into a problem with business, they start hemorrhaging money, and then they pay him to not go into business against him anymore, against them. So that was the Roberts and Aspen Mall that I mentioned in the previous episode that he was getting money from. All right, guys. Next time on, uh, you know, Vanderbilt, we'll, uh, you know, just give me a that was a That was a good sub-minute uh, summary of that. Nice. A little bit more. You could you can go as far into that as you want to, but let's let's just call it what it is. It's Vanderbilt doing Vanderbilt things, like I mentioned before. He's still doing the steamship stuff. He gets contracts to do whatever. Makes a lot of money. Civil War starts, and that was the transatlantic trade summary. And we're going to move on to investing in the railroad in full force. Everyone's favorite topic. The railroad. I'm going to preface this with, we know Vanderbilt for being a a railroad tycoon, right? If you've been keeping up with us, he started investing in the railroads in the 1840s. I'm talking minorly. He did not really get into the railroads until the 1850s, 1860s. He, He dabbled in the 40s, 1840s. Yeah, and... This is how the majority of his money was made for his family, but the family moving forward, let's say it like that, and how they developed their fortunes. But his majority of his business career and life was spent in the steamship operation, but yet he's more or less known as the railroad guy. You know, that's probably because steamships, they didn't last. I mean, they last a while, but we still have railroads today, right? That's probably why it's more impactful to us. That's why we consider him like, oh, he's the railroad guy. We're going to go into a full summary, or as full of a summary as we can get, about his dabbling in the railroads. Vanderbilt had been involved with railroads as early as 1840, which I had mentioned a second ago, mainly investing in the lines such as Stoddington Railroad, Long Island Railroad, and the Hartford and New Haven Railroad. The reason why was because these early railways fed Vanderbilt steamships. Okay, seems like a straightforward business investment. Makes sense to me. 
The largest he would involve himself with around this time was the New York and Erie Railroad, which ran from the Lake Erie to Jersey City, which he helped forward money to to keep operations going during financial hardship for the company. This enabled him to be put on the board of directors, which previously mentioned Daniel Drew. If you ever listen to any episodes, Daniel Drew was a shady business partner, mainly serving his own his own means. A one Robert Livingston Scullier swindled many in the 1850s railroad business by issuing false stock and overselling stock of various railroad companies he was a part of. He had served as president of the Illinois Central, where he sold stock to investors that did not exist, taking money and forwarding stocks as collateral. In one such instance, while working for the New York and New Haven, he issued 20,000 fake stocks to himself, which converted roughly into $2 million cash. Vanderbilt, nonetheless, was swindled by these maneuvers and had to go to court to get his money back. Robert Scalier fled to Canada in Europe, once it was known he had been selling fake stocks. Later, it was discovered that he had overissued Harlem stock in very much the same way he had the New York slash New Haven. This is the story of the first Harlem corner, the Harlem Railroad that had put forth a plan to be involved with the Broadway Railroad project to secure an exclusive license to operate horse car tracks down Broadway. This is in New York. This led to speculation early in 1863, where shares had rose far past their fair market value at $50 a share, with no immediate action by New York's Common Council. Many shorted the stock at this price. Those hopes evaporated when the council approved the project April 22nd. Share prices, instead of falling, began to rise to $70. That's called a squeeze, right? Yeah. Among the investors that shorted Harlem was George Law. Law went to the state legislation which other investors, with other investors to get a charter to form a new company with an exclusive license to the right-of-way on Broadway granted by the state of New York. So they're trying to commandeer this right away to keep Harlem from being able to get it. The governor, however, vetoed the order after feverish protests by prominent New York New Yorkers such as William B. Astor and Pierre Lyard. That was not correct. Pierre Lauriard? Lauriard. We're going to go with that. The news made Harlem shoot up to $100. A few days later, Vanderbilt was elected president of Harlem and other major associates such as Augustus Schell and Addison Jerome, stock rose to 116, Association with Vanderbilt. Now, Daniel Drew was known to be unreliable, as I mentioned earlier, and he made quite the profit on the run-up of Harlem stock, but he also had a significant short position at the original $50. Drew approached the New York Common Council members to short Harlem stock at its current price, Once they had bought up shares, the council would repeal the grant for the Broadway project, causing prices to plummet. However, Vanderbilt caught wind of this, so when the council made their move, Vanderbilt began buying all the available stock along with some of his colleagues. The day of the price started at 110 and closed at 72. The following day, Vanderbilt and party bought enough stock to get the price at 106. This continued a few more times until I think the price was around $253 before he allowed Drew and others to cover their stock price, which left many destitute. 
as that was all the money they had. One of those was Addison's room. Others, such as Augustus Schill and other people that stayed with Vanderbilt, were rewarded by having places on the Harlem Council. Long story short here, there were investors, they shorted stock, they lost their butt, they continued trying to short the stock by collusion with the government, they lost their butt again, and then Daniel Drew tried one more time to short the stock by cornering it with the New York Common Council, which were the people directly involved with approving the project, and lost again, because Vanderbilt did something that would later be known as cornering the market, and that's where we get that from today. Well... That's pretty cool. I mean, it's it's pretty funny. I know it's been a year or so, but I think the whole country knows about shorting stocks now. Yeah. Yeah, this was... I don't even think back then it was a, a new thing. But, yeah, I mean, this is just one instance of this happening. There's another instance, and I don't remember the dude's name, but they, I think it was the Erie Railroad. Vanderbilt tried cornering the market on buying the Erie Railroad, and... I forget the dude's name, but if you search it, this is a, that would be a more popular story, and that's actually where Vanderbilt lost a lot of money because he tried cornering the market, and they continue printing shares and shares and shares, diluting the share pile. And these weren't fake stocks; these were real stocks. It was called watering the stock, and he bought like two million dollars or something like that of stock, and it was not really worth a lot because he flooded the market with stock. As he bought it. So he essentially spent more money and never actually got any higher percentage ownership of the company. Not sure how that's legal, but... Okay. Back then it was. Well, well, I think given the jurisdiction they were in, he had the authority to issue new shares of stock. It, was, so was he? were they splitting the stock multiple times? No, they were printing new shares. That's what Vanderbilt ended up with whenever he received the actual papers of stock. They were like freshly printed pieces of paper. Wow. It wasn't necessarily legal, but it wasn't illegal. It was a very shady. It was like you couldn't just issue stock without getting approval, but you could. I don't know the laws behind it. See, that's the weird thing about stocks. It's we treat it we think of it kind of like money, but the one thing about money is you don't consider how much of a percent you of you know you own the amount of money in circulation but in stocks it's kind of like okay you own stocks at at a certain share price but it also kind of matters what percent you own of the company naturally if you if you own 50 shares out of 100 and they print 100 more you just lost 25 percent of your your company I mean, that is how that works. Yeah. The percentage matters a lot more than the cost. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, we kind of started a little summary of the episode there, but we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with y'all in a minute. I wanted to take a quick break to thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. I hope that you're enjoying it. Also, I would like to ask if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere you listen and let us know what you think of the show and maybe any future topics or people that you would like us to cover here. So don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at pmindspod where you also get a visual representation, not just the audio of what we talk about here. Now back to the show.
We are back to finish the conversation about Vanderbilt and his railroading. <laughs> Him railroading the railroad officials. Yeah, uh, that's what he did. I wonder if that's t- where it came from. Uh, hey, that's a good question. Someone look that up. It won't be me because I don't feel like it. Yeah, I can't reach the computer. Sorry. Uh, he has short arms, guys yeah, and gentlemen, yeah. ladies. Yeah, yeah. It's Beans. very short arms, like like half the length they should be. <laughs> but they're really wide. It's weird. Anyway. Okay. This is the first time that someone has cornered a market in a major way, and Vanderbilt did it to take over a railroad company and to defeat people trying to short. Actually, he didn't try to take it over. He was, well, I guess in an instance, he was trying to take sole ownership of the railroad. But that was not intentional. That was kind of by accident, primarily because he didn't want people that were shorting the stock to win. He forced them to pay a lot of money. Only Vanderbilt could accidentally take over a company by uh, trying to teach a lesson to somebody. That's a... Well, I don't think he accidentally did it. Like, he definitely was like, well, if you're going to do it, I'm going to own the company. He just he took them steps. That's what's interesting, isn't it? It's like, he's just like, he knows that that's like someone who goes dancing on the weekends, right? You go to Cotton Eye Joe's, wherever you, you dance. And someone who is exquisitely good at ballroom dancing. Like, you make can make some moves. But those guys have it choreographed. To where they know exactly what they're going to do. And he has been practicing this dance for... for 40 years. Yeah, 30, 40 years. If we want to discuss a little bit further on about his uh, railroad ventures, obviously the Civil War happened right around the time that railroads were becoming very popular. It's also where his favorite son, George Washington... Was it George Washington? I believe Vanderbilt so. Vanderbilt died. He actually died of... Typhoid, I think. He he got sick at the Battle of Shiloh and died. Yeah, a lot of people died from typhoid during the Civil War, I believe. That was a big big contributing factor to the casualties. Yeah, he was uh, pretty upset after this, um, given that he had favorites, and that was his only favorite. But his other son, Billy, after being sent away on the farm, actually showed himself to be a pretty good businessman. He eventually would take over the... Railroad operations from Vanderbilt as Vanderbilt aged. Well, old Billy. <laughs> One of our favorite uh, Vanderbilts. A little slow, a little sad. Actually, he ended up doing quite well. Like, he, he, I wouldn't say was cut from the same cloth as Vanderbilt, but he definitely showed himself to be a very good businessman and learned how to make anything he did profitable. Like he, he didn't have the golden touch per se, but he was able to turn around most businesses. Well, he, he had the, like the, he had like the copper touch. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. The copper tone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it maybe just took him a while to get like some distance away from old, uh, daddy, corny, Cornelie and just to get his legs under him. And maybe he's just a late bloomer. Yeah, I mean, that may be the case. Something So, Billy kind of helped. I wouldn't say he helped Vanderbilt, but in some ways he kind of did. Because Vanderbilt's all obviously pretty old at this point. He still has his wits about him. He's obviously cornering the market. The 1860s rolls around, loses his favorite son. He's a little bit older, a little bit more wise. The majority of the wealth that he created for his family, Vanderbilt, was from railroads. 
And that was primarily through owning them before they became a staple of transport for not just people, but, you know, products, logistics. So it's kind of like you buy in early, you're going to have a lot of money on your hands. And this is also something very fascinating is a lot of railroads were subsidized by government, like local government grants and stuff. They had to be financed as most young projects had to be by independent people like Vanderbilt. Like we mentioned earlier, Vanderbilt pioneered the Illinois Central, was it? Or it was one of them. Yeah. Well, also, just to touch on that point, how much money did he make from the Union Army actually using the, the railroads to get supplies to the troops you know, or, or transport troops in general? Yeah, very much similar to how Andrew Carnegie and Rockefeller made their money off the Civil War. I guess this is the adult, the age-old adage of war makes profit. War makes a lot of profit for very few people, but it does. Sounds like uh, now we understand why people are paying money to Ukraine. Anyway, right? do we want to bring up a controversial topic? So if anyone's keeping up with the news, FTX folded earlier this week. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> Actually, it's very fascinating if you don't know about this. This kind of brings about the point of war makes money is the administra- the current U.S. administration, you know, is sending billions of dollars to, to the Ukraine to help support their war defense effort. Okay. At the same time, like two weeks later, two days after the pay- like first 40 billion was sent or something like that, 40 million. The Ukraine invested in FTX to help them convert crypto donations for the war effort. And then FTX as a company was the second largest contributor to the Democratic Party campaigns. Like in general. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but something sounds a little fishy there. Oh, people are making money off this. Come on, do you think, really? You think all that money's going to that cause? I don't care what your political beliefs are. Always be skeptical of that. I don't care if it's the D's or the R's trying to do it. Yeah, like I don't I don't care either way. It's just like this is a very specific instance where the government US government as a whole takes tax money, throws it at another country. That country is like, here's this big thing that we have to deal with because we're getting so many crypto donations that we don't we can't convert it all to fiat currency to use let's hire a very large company that knows how to do that oh ftx okay i kind of get what they're going with but it's a very dumb idea well considering that ftx was a huge blunder in the fact could you call it a ponzi scheme in some realm of reason, yes, you can, because they basically funneled money. And I'm not saying like they funneled money from the U.S. government to like the Democrat Party. That's not what I'm talking about, um, even though it is kind of what looks what happened. A giant money laundering scheme is what it looks like. But FTX, outside of that, was very shady. But we're, we're getting a little off in the weeds here. But just to talk about the backdoor deals going down when war happens, Vanderbilt was not necessarily a part of this. Um, mainly because he's been dead for over a hundred years, but he was but also it, not a part of the Civil War. In that fact, I like he he did not. I don't think he owned a huge portion during the Civil War because you got to think these railroads were not very big. They weren't. They were not, but they were the fastest method of getting supplies and troops where they were where they could go. Yes. Yeah, and, no, I'm not, and I'm not saying there was any backdoor dealings, but I'm sure he didn't make no money on it. 
No, Vanderbilt would not invest in anything. There's actually a funny part, and I think I might have mentioned this earlier, is he loaned one of his ships to the Union Army, and they thought that he that they that he gifted it to him, and and he was like, "Now that wasn't a gift, but okay." <laughs> he was like, "I'm loaning it to you for free. You don't get to keep it, but they kept it anyway." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, who's going to, okay, if you say that, you know, thanks for the gift, you're like, oh, I can't not. Like, you can't, are you going to repo it? Yeah, nah. I mean, that's actually a very ironic thing, is Vanderbilt was very much a patriot. He really liked uh, liked America. Continuing on, and as we had mentioned a second ago about, I guess it's several minutes ago, about Billy taking over for the most part. The Central, I think it's the New York Central, was one of the big railroads in the Erie Railroad. And the Pennsylvania Railroad, the Reading Railroad, like these are like your big. Also, they sound fairly familiar too, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Monopoly. <laughs> these were like your large institutional railroads, or what became institutional railroads. And the main person who built up the New York Central in the Erie was actually Billy, was a primary orchestrator of that. I'm not going to go into that because this podcast is not about Billy. Simple Billy. We love you, Billy. But just to give you an idea is Daniel Torrance and Billy Vanderbilt took operational control of the Central. Annual through traffic shared by the Central and the, and the Harlem Railroad, the HRR, more than doubled in the first year of the new management once Billy permanently did away with the Central Steamboat Connections. To straighten out that jumbled words I just used was most crossings of rivers and whatnot, like we had mentioned also, is done by boat because they didn't have bridges spanning that far for railroads. Eventually, they were able to divert to through traffic where they did have crossings, which made it a little bit more profitable because now you don't have to stop on a train like you did with a stagecoach before that, load a steamship, and then get all over and then over the river and load back in. Right. By the end of 1868, the balance sheet looked so good that the Central's executive committee increased the annual dividend the annual dividend by two points, raising it to 8%. At the same time, the Vanderbilts, with Billy, Horace Clark, and Augustus Schill, increasingly taking lead in the day-to-day operations throughout the 1860s and early 1870s, the Vanderbilts would officially lease the HRR and the Harlem to the New York Central in 1869, forming the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad. In these railroads and all the roads the Vanderbilt group came to be involved with in the future, the modus operandi would be to consolidate towards maximum economic efficiency and profitability, water stock whenever possible, and increased dividend yield. This would be the constant pattern of business going forward. That sums up what Bailey did for the railroads, is more or less took over for Vanderbilt because he was getting old. He was very much getting senile, had a bunch of holes in his brain from the syphilis Oh, the syphilis. He just keep, keep he just couldn't keep away from the brothels. He just couldn't keep it out of his pants. Or he could, couldn't keep it in his pants. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe his wife was just like, I can't have any more kids. He's like, well, I'll try elsewhere. No, I'll try dead. elsewhere. She, yeah. oh. She's dead at this point. Yeah. She okay. actually also died of syphilis. What's fascinating is she, as we mentioned before, got put in a nut house. And we're going to bring this episode to a close now and break this into a two-part finale where we finish describing Vanderbilt's life. Next episode, we continue talking about his mental decline and what his family did 
about it, and particularly Billy and a little bit of the discrepancy in finances that occurred due to possibly Vanderbilt's decline in mental state and Billy's incline in business. So thank you for listening, and we'll be back for the final episode of Vanderbilt the next time around. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at pmindspod. And go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening to Prestigious Minds.